Community Radio relies on its listeners for funding. If you enjoyed this program and would like to hear more programs like it, please donate by going to 2XXFM.org.au, click Support 2XX, and then donate, subscribe, volunteer, or sponsor us. Thanks. What I thought I'd do is just give you a few biographical notes about myself, just to give a bit of context, and then do some. Then we can move more into a conversation and a sharing time. Um, so we'll see how we go. I'll stick to my notes at the beginning here because otherwise I'll I'll go raving on for too long. <laughs> uh, but thanks for being here anyway. I'm always interested to hear what other people's perspectives are. So I'll just tell you that. Um, so I'm David Purnell. I was born in Sydney, but I came to Canberra very young as a child, straight after the war. And um, we, so I've basically been a local since then, so you can work that out for yourself. <laughs> <laughs> a long time. Uh, so the exciting part of that, from my point of view, is that I've been involved in a place that's been growing and changing along, over a long period. So I was never dull, it was never dull as far as I'm concerned because there was always plenty of things happening, new people coming in, into the place. And the population, I should say, was 15,000 in 1946. Mm. People used to drive to Goulburn to get the shopping. Yeah. And, and now, of course, we're up to 400,000, so it's a pretty amazing change in a fairly limited period. Uh, after school at uh, Canberra High and Tilopia Park before that, I joined the public service and spent several years in the Bureau of Statistics. The main reason for that was that the Bureau of Statistics used to offer all these cadetships, which was very handy. Gave you a bit of money while you studied. I then moved to work at the ANU in the administration there and eventually worked with the Australian Vice-Chancellors Committee, which is the forerunner of Universities Australia. So we had a small secretariat and in those days there were 18 universities, hard to remember that. Now, heaven knows how many there are now. And the, co the Colleges of Advanced Education were a different lot altogether. Anyway, so that, that was in the Whitlam era in the 70s, of course, when everything was expanding. Education, all funding, universities, commission, all those things were being set up. Everybody was so excited about what was happening in the tertiary sector that it was a really good time to be there. Um, and then I got interested in a thing called Australian Frontier. Now Australian Frontier was set up by a man called Peter Matthews who'd been a congregational minister who'd served in various places around the world. And he had this, what in those days was a very radical idea, that you should have occasions where you focus on a topic, you bring a group of people together, all of whom have some stake in the topic. Now these days, People do that all the time. But in those days, this is in the 60s, um, basically people uh, didn't do that sort of thing. You know, people just were in their little silos doing their own thing. So Frontier tried to bring people together, such as, you know, an issue like the care of the elderly or, you know, the way schools are run or something like that. And in Canberra, we ran one on the needs of hostel dwellers in the years when Thousands of public servants lived in hostels. So we actually did a survey and then we brought a whole lot of people together, including Commonwealth Hostels, Public Service Board, all these people, about 50 people, people from the hostels, sat them in a room for two days and said, 
you know, what are the issues that need to be de dealt with in relation to the needs of hostel dwellers? So Frontier did some very dynamic work at that time and there was a, a plan at one stage to raise a lot of money and put a big centre in Canberra for this whole sort of thing, but that never quite got off the ground. In the meantime, I joined the Quakers. Um, I'd grown up as a Congregationalist, which is why I knew about Peter Matthews, who was a bit of an icon in that denomination. And, but then my wife and I joined the Quakers and um, realised that that was more something that we, we appreciated more the value of the way they operated. They met in silence. Uh, they didn't have a, a minister. It was much more of a matter of spontaneous uh, worship. And that's where I'm still involved. Uh, so I then became the secretary for the Quakers for Australia, which is a sort of national coordinating person. And I did that for about 10 years, travelled around Australia, kept in touch with all sorts of different groups, got involved with the National Council of Churches, which was called the Australian Council of Churches in those days. And it was quite a radical sort of organisation in those days. But as I got more involved in peace, particularly interested in peace, I, um, I started looking at mediation as a possibility. And in the 80s, uh, I joined with some other people and we formed a group to develop a mediation service in Canberra. Now, at that time, the only such thing in Australia was the Community Justice Centres of New South Wales, which were set up in the uh, early 80s. And they were intended to provide people with an alternative to the legal system in solving disputes. So we thought, this is a good idea. We got a group of people together, we started a committee, and then we lobbied to get something done in Canberra. Now, in those days, we didn't have self-government, so the result was we had to lobby the federal government. And then in the middle of that, the ACT got self-government, so we had to switch our <laughs> focus to the ACT. And so when Rosemary Follett became the first Chief Minister of the ACT, she gave us a grant for a pilot project to set up a mediation service in Canberra, and it's been going since then, so that's nearly, nearly third, getting on for 30 years now. And so we can say more about that perhaps in a little while, but the other things I've worked for are the United Nations Association of Australia, which supports the aims and objects of the UN, but is, is, is an independent body. I mean, it's a community organisation. So, it, and there are these bodies in many countries around the world, and they're basically civil societies' access to the UN, if you like, to comment on what the UN does, lobby to make sure Australia sticks to its commitments to the UN and all that sort of thing. Uh, so I've been, I was involved in th as their national administrator for quite a while. And... Um, so that, that, that put me well in this area of international peacemaking and I was also involved in some international Quaker groups that were trying to support peacemaking. Quakers have always had um, a presence at the United Nations in New York and Geneva. They have permanent staff and they have interns coming through, learning all about the UN, helping to run confidential meetings. Now these meetings are done in such a way that the diplomats are invited to come to a meeting on a confidential basis to discuss current issues before the UN and they are, they are allowed in this venue to be uh, sort of private. They don't have to say, you know, I'm going to stick with my country's particular position on this. I, I've come to learn about what the issues are 
and then they can decide how they want to use that in their own work. So that's been going on for years, and, and diplomats' meetings uh, one of the things that Quakers have done for a long time. Um, on a more personal level, I'm a partner, my partner Chris Larkin. Um, I'm a father and a grandfather, I'm even a great-grandfather now, so that's very exciting. Uh, and when I have delusions of grandeur, I certainly get brought down to earth by my great-grandchildren. Um, I enjoy bike riding, walking, and try and do you know, a bit of, a bit of uh, film going, go to plays, you know, whatever, theatre and music, sing in a choir and all that sort of stuff. So, a bit of a mixture. Um, there are just a couple of particular things I, I, I'd like to sort of let you know about. In 1994, which was when South Africa held its first big election, um, I was one of the international observers from the World Council of Churches. They took 500 people from around the world into South Africa to, for the two weeks before the election. Some of them were probably there a bit longer than that, but I was there for two weeks. And we were put in little groups who went to different parts of the country to see how the peace, so how the elections were going. We had special jackets to say that we were international peace observers. And we went around talking to local people, to people in religious groups, to people in tribal groups, to government officials, to the election people running the election. And the main concern where I was, which was Boputaswana, which was one of the tribal lands in the west, was that they'd just had a bit of a riot and a whole lot of people had risen up against the local tribal elders who didn't like the, the democratising process and that the elders had rushed off to their village and, and the whole of the central area of this place was all looted. So you had, imagine walking through Civic, because you know, the buildings were quite modern buildings in this city, and there was nothing in the shops, you know, just blank shops. And that's what we were confronted with. So there was a fair bit of uncertainty. The, the right-wingers were threatening to blow up the election places. They were threatening all sorts of groups, because they didn't want the election to take place either. So we had some interesting experiences going around talking to different groups. And um, as it happened, the actual election day, there were actually three days for the election, so that was very wise to allow plenty of time for people to vote, um, were fine. And, and even though I'm a pacifist by nature, I must admit that was one occasion when I was quite grateful for the South African Defence Force, which actually stood outside all the polling booths and mm. kept the peace because being a highly trained army they were they knew the game was up you know the whites were no longer running the show and so they knew they had to be neutral and they so they that's what they were they just said this is our job to guard people, you know the polling stations so that was very impressive and of course Nelson Mandela was elected and so on. We did see him speaking at one of the rallies before the election, which was an amazing sort of experience to see this enormous crowd and so forth and how he worked them. So uh, yes, it's, uh, I guess there's been some problems since then in South Africa, but that was a pretty important thing from my point of view as a person getting involved in all that. And the excitement that people had about actually voting, you know, people who'd never voted, people of my age who, who sort of spent their whole life in a submissive state, in a sense, 
and uh, suddenly there they were voting. Fantastic. Um, there was one other particular thing I was going to mention which is much more local. Many of you will be aware that, that these arms trade fairs are fairly common around the world. And there was one in Canberra called ADEX. And um, of course there was the usual uh, groups of peace groups who uh, were lobbying against it and who were having demonstrations outside the ex you know, exhibition park over there. And um, we applied as Quakers to have a stall. <laughs> And we were granted a stall. <laughs> and so there we were in the middle of this, this pavilion with our little peace stall uh, surrounded by all these <laughs> military uh, organisations. And we had some very interesting conversations with people as they came by and sort of suddenly realised we were not actually selling <laughs> weapons. Wow. And we had, we had videos going and we had handouts and all that sort of stuff. So that was quite an interesting experience, I must say. Um, so it shows you, you know, that you can sometimes make an, a, an entry point to a, um, an area where you might normally expect to be treated that way. So our general approach within Quakers is to be um, as far as possible very open with people about what we're planning to do and uh, how we're going to go about it and um, as far as possible cooperating with people even if we don't agree with them and we have a national Quaker peace committee in Canberra which I'm part of and I'll show you some of my handouts that we've written recently that some of you might like to take away because one of our jobs is to produce briefing papers about current issues and we send them all over the country and we don't, we don't mind if non-Quakers read them as well because we see it was all part of the process of people being educated about current things. So the most recent uh, nuclear weapons ban treaty which has just been adopted by the UN, that's our latest briefing paper is about that. So because Australia has been a bit of a uh, thorn in the side of not, not taking part in all those discussions and being rather niggardly about that. Um, so that's a bit of, that's just a bit of background about me that, that clearly I, I'm very committed to this whole idea of a non-violent society, how you create peaceful relationships among people. And I work as a mediator uh, because of Part of that, that's part of my commitment, is to work in that way to try and help people resolve conflict between them. And that has included not only interpersonal conflicts, we deal with um, marital conflicts, family, you know, sort of adolescent parent conflicts, business disputes, um, landlord tenant disputes, anything, you know, a whole mixture of these sorts of neighbour disputes. So we'll deal with any of those. Um, and I, that to me has been a very interesting experience to sort of learn more about how you can deal with that. But the other thing I was going to mention was that we haven't done as much of it more recently because we just haven't had the resources. But when, when our service began, we used to offer to do community sort of disputes, town meeting type things. And I, and I remember having one up here, actually, at the Dixon Community Centre. 
uh, about the whole town plan for this North Canberra, where we brought together all sorts of people from this area, along with the planners from the NCDC, as it was then, to talk about you know what was about to happen, and and we've done we did a number of those sort of town meetings, and I think probably we it would be really good if we could get more into that because. Uh, I open the newspaper every day and I see some dispute that the government's having with somebody or there's some issue around housing or whatever it might be. And I think if you had more independent facilitators who could go into these situations and actually run these sort of events, you'd get a much better result instead of an angry crowd of people confronting a group of officials at the front who, who are sort of trying to duck for cover. Mm. Um, and so I think there's a real skill in being able to do that kind of thing as a neutral uh, facilitator. Um, just say a little bit about mediation itself, because I think it's a... Um, well, no, make a, make a more general point about conflict resolution. For many years, I think it's been a, it was assumed in our society that you deal with conflict by suppressing it or managing it or controlling it. So you have a strong police force, in inverted commas, to keep people in order. Now, in the 20th century, with the development of more understanding about how we as human beings operate, how our brains have more capacity than we might have thought, and all that kind of thing, there's been a lot more recognition that you can actually resolve conflict so that you don't have to sit by and say, oh, well, I've just got to put up with it, you know. It'll never change. All I've got to do is to make sure the other person doesn't beat me up. And if I've got a good policeman next to me, well, that'll help. So uh, there's a lot more emphasis in more recent years about how you develop techniques for, for in fact, uh, getting people to explain why they take the position they do and getting them to, be, to listen to what the other person has to say about why they take the position they do. So in mediation, a lot of the whole thing is around actually getting people to listen to each other and slowing down the whole interaction between people so that they take the time. People sometimes get a bit of a shock when we tell them, they say, how long will this mediation last? And we say, well, it'll last as long as it'll last. Um, we're, here, we're here to help you work things out and, uh, and we're, we're quite happy for you to keep going for as long as is needed. Obviously, if people get worn out, you just say, well, we'll pause here and we'll come back later or we'll do something else. But the idea is that there's no sort of, none of this business of saying, and in fact, some people walk into the room and say, I've got another appointment in an hour and a half. Uh, I hope this won't take very long. <laughs> and then you find that as they get into it, they forget all about the other appointment and they kind of realise that this is a much more complicated thing to do. So... I see the whole uh, mediation approach as being one of really in getting people to, to engage with each other to the point where they can actually see there's some common ground and part of my job as a mediator is to help them to see where the common ground might be and then to say, well, okay, we've talked about the past, why things happened, we've heard each other explain you know, why, they, why we reacted the way we did now we can start moving into thinking about what we could do to prevent this from happening again. 
and then you get people to focus on particular steps that they can take. And that sort of approach is operating in the restorative practice area as well. So that's where you have family conferencing and those kinds of things, where, which I've done a bit of. In, in, um, in this part of the world, it started mainly with juveniles. So if, if somebody's committed an offence, somebody's pinched something out of a car, um, and they, it's a first offence, and the police say, well, we'll refer you for a conference. So we won't take you to court, we won't prosecute you, we'll, and, we'll, and so you invite an independent mediator to talk to the people concerned, that's the people who are the victims, the people who did the act, and the families around it, because it's, this is about juveniles. And then you bring them all together. And you might possibly have the police person who arrested them, or you may not. Depends on whether they're available. You might have a priest, you might have a counselling person who's a friend of the family or something like that. You sit around and you work out. Well, again, you listen to what's happening. The person who did it has to explain what happened from their point of view. The victim can say what effect it's had on them. And then the other people in the room can add their comments. So needless to say, you get some fairly harsh language being used at that point. And as a facilitator, you have to allow people to say what they need to say without being rude or offensive or throwing things at people or whatever. Um, and then once they've done that, uh, most victims, having been heard, are willing to say, OK, um, I don't want you to ruin your life, you're young, um, I'm, I'm happy to try and work something out that will, will make things better. So the perpetrator then has to go away into a corner with their side and work out what they're going to offer to do. And so they might come back and say, well, I'll offer you an apology. Or I'll... They rarely offer money because most of these young people are too poor and their families are too poor to make much financial uh, contribution, but they may offer to do some work for the other person on a voluntary basis for a certain time, or they may, you know, there may be some other arrangement, and then the victim can say whether they're willing to accept that. And so you then draw up a sheet of paper that says, you know, this is what's going to happen, and this is who's going to supervise it, and this is how long it's going to take, and and so forth. And then that gets lodged with the police and so forth. And, um, and usually that works pretty well, in fact. And, and people often come up with quite creative uh, solutions. Um, I remember one young Aboriginal boy who had um, stolen some, some shoes, <laughs> well, no, mm -hmm. some sneakers, I suppose, some sporting shoes from a, a, a room at, at a... Um, it was a town, a town centre or somewhere. It was in Yass, actually. And somehow this travelling salesman had left his, some of his goods in this room. And this young guy got in there, stolen some sneakers and disappeared. Anyway, he got caught. And, of course, he couldn't return the sneakers because he'd already bought them, you know, used them and all that sort of thing. So he was brought together with the, with the, the salesman. And he described his life. This young boy described his life and why he, you know, he was attracted by these sneakers and so forth. And so 
at the end of the conversation and the other guy said, well, you really pissed me off. You know, you've cost me a lot of money because these were really expensive sneakers and, you know, part of my sales that I had to deal with. And uh, eventually the young boy and his mother came up with the idea that the young boy uh, would, would do an Aboriginal, would decorate a didgeridoo because he was learning the art, you see. He was learning how to do his Aboriginal customs and so on. And so he, he said he would, uh, he would offer that. And the sales guy said, oh, that, that sounds really good. I'll accept that. <laughs> and so, <laughs> so there you go. Right. And in another case, which was at a high school or a, you know, a college, where a young man had pinched a whole lot of tools out of the back seat of a car of his teacher, because he was learning, <laughs> it was the school holidays were coming up, and he realised he didn't he didn't own any of these tools himself, so he pinched them from the back seat of his teacher's car, so he could do these things at home, and he got caught, of course. And so they then uh, brought this. In fact, the school principal came along, the college principal came along to this meeting, and out of this meeting they decided that. This boy was really, his, his skill was in motor mechanics. That was what he wanted to do in his life. He, he was really committed. And so the, the principal said, well, we can, we can speed up your course so you can finish six months ahead of normal time if you do it this way and you can leave school earlier so you can get a job as a mechanic or whatever it was. You know. So that was a very interesting creative solution as well. So we find in a lot of these things that you people walk into the room and you think how on earth will these people ever agree on anything you know the way they're behaving towards each other the attitude they've got to each other is so bad but after they've been through a process of mediation or conferencing or whatever uh, it's amazing how they can they can almost literally walk out of the room arm in arm not very often that quite that much but they can at least work out um, what they can do. So we're usually successful in, the statistics are that we can produce a result that's effective in 85 to 90 percent of cases where people are actually prepared to sit in the room and work it out. Nevertheless there are always that small proportion of people who want to maintain the rage and if they want to maintain the rage there's nothing we can do. We basically, we cannot, we cannot make people, force them into a uh, an agreement because it's a voluntary process and that's where the Family Law Act is a bit of a problem because the Family Law Act says you cannot go to court unless you've been to mediation um, if you're a separating couple for example um, the only ex exception to that is if you can prove there's violence and then you may not have to go to mediation you may be able to go straight to court but the problem with that is that people then sometimes come along saying, well, I've got to tip, tick this box that says mediation, so I'm coming along, but I'm esteemed up as all get out. And I'm not in a state to resolve anything. So those, those can be quite difficult. So at times we curse the lawmakers for, for making that mm. provision. However, we do try to persuade people, here you are, here's an opportunity to sort these things out. So take it and then they can they can make a choice I guess some of the worst disputes are neighbor disputes 
because it, even in marital family disputes, people may, they may hate each other's guts and they never want to see each other again, but they've got the children to worry about. And so there's a common ground, how can we work something out for the kids? So even when they don't like each other, um, they are, they're prepared to say, okay, we've got to work out a plan for the children. And so you can get them to make some progress. Whereas neighbours, I'm amazed, you get some neighbours who really do feel they're so right and the other person is so wrong that they're never going to give any ground, literally, at all. And so you get these horrific sort of conflicts between neighbours. And sometimes you just sort of scratch your head and think, well, you know, what can you do? The only hope is that one person will move away or something. Or, you know. mm. Uh, anyway, look, I'll stop at that point perhaps and, um, and open it a bit more to other people's conversation and uh, tell us a bit about the things that you're concerned about and, and uh, we'll see where it goes from there. What was the name of that conflict um, thing that was set up? Conflict Resolution Service. Mm -hmm. It's in the Griffin Centre, right next to uh, 2XX. <laughs> And it's one of, and most of these organisations are now part of the state apparatus in most states. But in the ACT, we have been an independent civil society organisation right through. We get funded by the ACT government most of the time, most of our stuff. We now have a program working with families. We have another program working with housing uh, tenants in ACT housing and so forth. So we actually have quite a few members of staff funded by different parts of the ACT budget. Um, but we remain a, uh, a, an incorporated association because the government doesn't want to take us over. So we're very happy with that. Oh, there you go. Is that a service that's free for people to use? Or do they pay? Um, it varies. There's a sliding scale now. It used to be free when it started. But um, because of budgetary things and so on, I think neighbourhood disputes are still free. Okay. And the ones that uh, family disputes, we charge very much the same as Relationships Australia would, which is a sliding scale according to income. And each party will pay a share. Um, if a government department, sometimes we get a government department will come to us and say, we've got a dispute between these people in, in a particular section of our department. And uh, so a, a, a fee will be negotiated that the department will pay for that to be done. So we become a sort of fee for service for that. So it does vary. I don't know what the current scales are, to be quite honest. Uh, I keep out of all that. Mm. <laughs> Have you found, David, um, like as a skill, like it is a conflict resolution service, is it getting better results? Like it has the skill of media has been improving over the years and... Does that lead to a better result, or is it...? Um, well, that's an interesting question, actually, Sarah, because yeah. I would say it's probably one of those situations where I'd say that the disputes are more complicated. Now? As, yeah. yeah. Disputes that come to us are more complicated, and so we need a higher level of skill to actually deal with them. I think the level of um, um, conflict in the community is perhaps more... Really? Enhanced at the moment. There's a lot more 
assertiveness leading to, which can slip over into aggress- aggression. Um, I think, I mean, I'm all for rights and everything like that, but I think what it's done to some people is to make, make it that they're determined that they are right and so that they won't give ground as easily. And so there are lots more sort of subtleties, I suppose. And we're not there to psychoanalyse people or to, you know, sort of try and... So we get mental health issues coming in as well, you know, people who are a little bit on the borderline mentally, having trouble. And you sort of... And we have an intake process, you know, where all our people... All people are interviewed by our staff before they're sent into a mediation. So the staff actually make a decision as to whether this is suitable for mediation or not. If it's not, they will advise the people on other avenues they can take. So sometimes it's a little bit marginal, you know, are these people really in a space where you can make progress? Mm. Um, But the ACT, um, the first person who directed our service was David Syme, who came from a counselling background. He set up our service. He subsequently went to work for the Commonwealth Attorney General's Department in the family law area. He helped to devise the standards for mediators around Australia, which are now well established. So now mediators have to do a proper training course and get accredited. And then if you want want to do family law mediation, you have to do more professional development on top of that. So, we, so professional development is a strong part of the mediation scene. And uh, so I imagine that'll continue to be the case. But um, So hopefully our skills are you know, equal to the task. Mm. Yeah. That's interesting what you said about the conflict changing. I really thought about that, or becoming different. Or yeah. I didn't think that would be the case, but I guess it is, yeah. Yeah. And it may simply be that more people have been educated now to speak up for themselves. And, you know, that's no, that's no bad thing. But it means that they then come into conflict perhaps more easily with other people, whereas in the past they might have shut up and tried to sort of accommodate, you know. Mm. Um, and we try as far as possible to give plea. The first part of a mediation is total chaos, really, because it's when people are really lashing out at each other, really sort of letting fly in a metaphorical sense, you know. They're really kind of accusing each other of things mm. and so you've got to get that out in some way um, before you can expect them to start seeing where there's some kind of um, way forward and is, it, is that the same at an international level like when, we talk, when you're talking about the um, Quakers work for the UN mm. were there, are there the same skills and same processes happening amongst diplomats in those confidential meetings or not really? In a way, maybe not quite as much that way, but mm-hmm. um, because diplomats, I suppose, are trained to be as um, uh, be fairly respectful in the way they treat each other, so you wouldn't expect too much aggro there. But um, but the principle's the same, and that is that it gives them a, an opportunity to meet outside the formal processes of, uh, of international negotiation to actually... Um, you know, talk about the issue and get more information about the issue. See, the Quakers have a university back uh, in England called Bradford University, which has a very strong peace studies program and and was originally set up by a Quaker. 
And what they do is they work with the Quaker UN people. So if you go to Geneva, for example, for some issue around um, human rights or something, then the Bradford people might be brought in as resource people, sort of academics who've done research in various areas, and they might be brought in as one of the people to take part in one of these gatherings of diplomats and so on. So that's what they try to do, to bring in people from different resources and, and educate the diplomats, really. So, um, yeah. So is it something like, um, in terms of, but I mean, it must be hard to say, maybe even just for Australia, what do you think are the resources and that, that are being put towards piecework, like funding, mediation, training, or developing those skills in foreign yeah. service people, or even within the government, or is it...? Yes, it's pretty bad in the sense that, um, you know, when you look at the defence budget and then you look at the foreign affairs budget, it's mm. horrifically different. Mm. And, uh, in fact, we had, a public, we had a public rally down in Civic in, I don't know, April, was it? Um, and on, on a peace thing, theme, and I was moved then to say something like, um, you know, I, I long for the day when I wake up and I hear there's a problem in so and so, and Australia is sending a team of mediators. Mm. Mm. <laughs> mm. And on Anzac Parade, you know, where there's all sculptures mm. for the different wars. There's a peace memorial, or is there? A there's space, going to be one. There's yeah. a space for a peace memorial. That's right. And has it just started to be constructed? I'm, I haven't actually been to have a look, but mm. there's. Uh, I, that's a good point because, in fact, they've been trying to raise money for that for some years, and I hope it'll come good because it, uh, the government's refused to give them any money. It was actually an initiative of the P, of the police and. Uh, peacekeeping groups because the police do peacekeeping yeah, and yeah. so do the military, so, the military. Mm. so it's an initiative from them and a whole lot of civil society groups have got involved as well mm-hmm. and they've been trying to raise money for some years now and they, they must be pretty close they've got a design all mm-hmm. set up mm-hmm. and so yeah, yeah well I haven't been to have a look lately but mm-hmm. yeah it would certainly be refreshing to have something there for that instead of some of the other things that they were thinking of putting up memorials to the World War One and Two. I don't know were whether they? was more, it. Yeah. More memorials. Oh, they already got those. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, a few years ago, there was a big push by some people to actually create two new big obelisks down on the lake, oh. on the edge of the lake, Rond Point. There, you know, mm. bottom of Anzac Parade. Yeah. One for each war, mm. major war. Uh-huh. And they had a design, and I think the architect for that got the shock of his life when he came to a meeting here, and a whole lot of us NGOs turned up and said, we don't want this. Mm. You know, what are you doing all this for? And so that kind of died. Mm. And as you say, you know, what's the War Memorial for? So we've got all this stuff in it. Yeah, yeah. it's mainly about the World Wars. Yeah. yeah. But I think you need to challenge these. See, we wrote to the War Memorial on one occasion and said, according to your act, you're supposed to be a, literally a memorial to what's happened in the past as a, as a sort of caution for the future, if you like. And yet here you are having these open days where you openly display all these latest military hardware and you, know, you get kids climbing on tanks and all that stuff. And we said we thought that was pretty dubious in relation to their brief. And we got a very curt response from that. 
basically saying get stuffed, you know, we'll do what we like. Um, and yeah, I mean, you know, frontier wars, all these other things that are coming up now. But to, to their credit, there is now on Anzac, I don't know whether any of you have seen it, but there's a candlelight walk down the mountain, down the mountain now, organised by Chorus of Women and yes. other people mm. on Anzac Eve. And, then, and mm. Brendan Nelson has been fully informed about that and, and has supported it. So there what has role does Brendan Nelson have? Well, he's the director of the War Memorial. Oh, is he? So he has a lot of influence, and he's not always very sympathetic to the peace mm. perspective, mm. but he has acknowledged that this is a reasonable thing, that they're allowed to walk around the area near the War Memorial and have a little ceremony and so forth. So, mm. you know, there are some, some moves... But I think what we what we get upset about is this sort of assumption which seems to run through a lot of the public debate that the ultimate the ultimate sacrifice you can make as a citizen is to get killed in a war. You know, this is this is the ultimate thing. And it's almost like anything less than that, you're not quite a citizen. You know, you're sort of the the implication instead of celebrating all the things that Oh, well, put, let me put it another way. Did any of you see in 2013 they had this exhibition at the National Museum about Australia in, the, uh, in 1913? I saw it, yeah. Called Glorious Days. Mm. And basically it showed how Australia, between 1901 and 1913, had become a very innovative country in many ways, in electoral ways, in role of women, in all sorts of things. And suddenly, 1913 is the end of that period, and then the war comes. And how it interrupted a whole lot of things that were really in important. And so I think it's, it's that kind of thing that you get um, getting ignored, you know, sort of. So a lot of people say, you know, we came of age in 1915 or whatever it was because we went to war. And... Uh, I think if you read the honest history books by the people who, for, for, uh, various people who've written, there is a book called The Honest History Book that's out at the moment. Mm. And it's full of chapters all about this whole mythology around war mm. and the way it's been distorted uh, so that people, uh, and the amount of money that's been spent on educating people to assume that war is inevitable and that young people... And it's all been done... Uh, you know, both parties are responsible for this. I think it was Paul Keating who actually started this whole process of giving the Department of Veterans Affairs money so they could educate young Australians. So they started writing curricula and all that sort of stuff. It wasn't Howard. No, he continued it. Oh. Writing like, curricula about war. About like, war and war. sacrifice and... Well, that, that whole Anzac legend. Yep. Was that Keating started? Keating started it, yeah. Oh. So, you know... Is that more about that? <laughs> isn't that interesting, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Um, so that's sort of, you know, that builds up then. And so, now, I'll, I'll give you a very personal example. My daughter, one of my daughters, is the, has been a CEO of the History Teachers Association of Victoria for some years. And she, as a result of her position, she's on the Simpson Prize Committee. Mm -hmm. Now, the Simpson Prize, named after Simpson and his donkey, donkey and all that, 
is a, an essay competition for students around Australia and in every state they choose a couple of winners and they bring them to Canberra and they wine and dine them around the War Memorial, they take them to Parliament House, they get presented with various awards, they go to Duntroon and have a special dinner and you know, she's had to go along with this as the, as the head of this organisation and she's desperately saying, oh my goodness, how can we change this? Well, I think they are changing it a little bit. They've broadened the, the sort of topics that the kids can write on. So, that, you know, it's not all just war and war and war now. There's a little bit more opportunity for more creative stuff. But that's an example of the resources that have been put into building this narrative that, you know, you've got to expect to, um, yeah, to preserve the peace by going to war, basically. And so... Mm. What do you say to people when people make that kind mm. of argument? Or, or the argument that, you know, conflict is part of who we are and, and that brutality is a natural part of our... Yeah, person. yeah. What's your response to that? Well, I'd say, yeah, sure, conflict is part of life and it's inevitable, but um, it's how you deal with it and what you, you know, what steps you can take and what skills you develop to, to actually handle it. So now you've got these things like peer mediation in schools where older kids learn how to help younger kids in fighting in the playground or something like that. And so... There are little cards they can learn, the questions they can ask. What's happened? You know, how did it happen? How did you feel? <laughs> Various things like that that they can ask these kids to tell each other, and uh, and try to get them to understand. You know, to listen to what the other person says and so forth. And there was a one. <laughs> I couldn't help laughing. There was a woman called Jan Day, who's I think she's currently on leave from. Kingsford Smith High School, which is the new one out in Belconnen that, that runs from kindergarten to year 12. She took a group of teenage girls who had been sending very rude, nasty text messages to each other. So she brought them into her office and she said, now girls, I want you to read out these text messages to each other in, in this room. So she <laughs> you can imagine what effect that had. That was pretty powerful. Um, so there are things happening but the trouble is a lot of them are very piecemeal and a lot of them rely on individual teachers who are very um, committed to all this sort of thing so yeah that's that's alright we'll stop a minute so Dave you mentioned that um, as a mediator you know there's a certain amount of cases where mediation doesn't really help because people don't in a way and I sense that's because you know one of the people just doesn't really want to talk they don't want to change their position at all so I was just wondering like maybe as a Quaker or from any other perspective what advice would you give to people to actually help them change you know be at least be willing to move away from what they're kind of fixated on I suppose you have to ask people you have to keep drilling down onto why do they want to, why why do they feel they have to maintain that position, or why yeah. why is it that, what is it that's driving you? What's your bottom line in a sense, you know? Mm-hmm. 
that makes you so unwilling to compromise in this situation or to, to um, give ground. Mm. And sometimes, see, in mediation you do have private sessions. We always start with a private session with each person mm -hmm. and, and we check out how they're going and are, are they willing to go ahead today because usually it's a couple of weeks since they set up the appointment. Yep. And we work in pairs, so we model communication by having two people do mediation. Mm. And we match up. So if it's a male-female disputant, we have male-female mediators. If it's an older-younger disputes, we have an older and younger mediator. You know, so we try to be um, mirroring some of the um, you know, modelling, I suppose. So in the private session, you can start to say to somebody, well... You know, you seem to be both stuck in a position. What can you do? Uh, can you think of things that, that you'd be prepared to offer to the other person? Um, so we get them to sort of uh, try and orient themselves to thinking about, is there anything you could agree to? And sometimes it even works if we say to them in the, when they're together, we actually might say, well, look, um, it appears that uh, you... you at the moment, you're a long way apart. You know, from what you've both said, you're not in a position at the moment where you can agree on very much at all. And in fact, I had a mediation recently where, where we basically said to these people, having heard what you've said, there's only one thing on which you've agreed in this whole conversation. So we're going to have a private session with each of you and we want you to think about what else you might be able to do with that, you know, apart from the one thing. Uh, and so we, we went then had the conversation with each of them separately, you know. We still got the feeling that, ooh, geez, it was still very dicey. And yet when we came back together, we said, okay, now we want to check with you. Are you still, are you still agreed on this one thing? And so we checked, yes, we are agreed on that. And then we said... Now, you really didn't want to agree on anything else, but um, we'll just go through the items that you've discussed. So we went through each item in turn, and they started to say, well, maybe we could do that. Mm. Mm. And so we went through very slowly, and we ended up with 10 points of agreement, which we were able to write up for them and they could take away. And, of course, these are all voluntary, so they have to... If they, if they want to do anything legally with anything, they agree they have to go to a lawyer and get it put into a legal mm -hmm. form. But mm -hmm. this was a parenting plan, as I recall. So it was... And they could register that with the family court if they wanted to. Mm -hmm. But I, my sense was that the main thing was that they could actually agree on 10 points. Mm -hmm. And usually we get people to say, how long are you going to make this run? You know, are you going to review it in, five, in six months or three months or... A year uh, to see how it's going and if you want to come back we'll help you do it again so we normally build in all these kind of little provisions as we go um, but yes yeah, so, but you're right I mean there are certain times we sometimes use shuttle which is not very satisfactory that's where you have them in separate rooms yeah and you carry messages between them Oh, right, yeah. Which is not very satisfactory usually, but. Um, pretty old style mediation. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it, it, sometimes it can work. It may, may, may ease the pain a little bit, but they might be able to agree. <laughs> Maybe I won't think. <laughs> but, oh, you know, it's a pretty thankless task as a mediator to try and run a shuttle, I have to say.
Although these days you can do some over the phone. I don't, we don't seem to do much phone ones. I've done a few like that. If people are in different places and you, you can't get them together, you might mm. perhaps using a sort of, uh, you know, a phone system. Mm. Um, mm. But again, it's, it's a bit dicey trying to do that. Mm. Yeah, I guess, I guess, you know, what, what you're talking about and also just from what I know of peace work and mediation is it's really about giving people the tools to have another way and, you know, in a very sort of interpersonal way but also in a global way, it's a cultural change and modelling mm. is really important there and, you know, I kind of go between hope and despair and a mm. lot of time just rest in that apathetic kind of yeah. place because I can't maintain my energy, you know, in either of those sort of those positions. positions. <laughs> um, Fair enough too. Yeah, but, you know, with in terms of the Quakers and the kind of legacy of, you know, the way the Quakers worked with slavery in America and, you know, something you said earlier mm. really meant a lot to me, which was that with the mediation process, you don't expect it to be resolved straight away mm. and that you allow the process to take time. And, you know, that's something that, you know, I, I think there's a lot in that. Mm. You know, you don't have to be maybe more clever at what you say or more have more neuroscientific insight or, you know, <laughs> there's no sort of... Yeah. yeah, that's true. You know, it's just allowing people to metabolise things and trusting that, you know, there'll be a shift. Yeah. And I think all of us have a problem, in a sense, with wanting to fix things up. Mm. And one of the biggest challenges as a mediator is not to want to fix things up. Mm. In other words, it's a voluntary process. We keep telling people they don't have to agree to things. They can decide not to agree to something. Mm. And we're not going to push them into agreeing. And, and you learn fairly quickly that if you try and sort of manipulate people into agreeing to something, you're going mm. to come a cropper. And, you know, it'll, it'll, it'll unwind in some way. So you have to yeah. tease it out more slowly and you have to get people to say... Oh, well, one of the things we do sometimes, we say, um, OK, Charlie, you've said this. Now, George... Will you just say back to Charlie what you've heard Charlie say? Mm. And you know you have to you have to do use that fairly sort of uh, sparingly because people <laughs> people think you're just spending your whole time <laughs> manipulating them into saying this or that. But but it can be a, it breaks a logjam sometimes because you realise that the other one hasn't really heard what the first person said anyway, and so they can say it again. No. be heard and, um, and and in a way one of our jobs is to help people communicate better for a longer term you know in other words you may not resolve this one totally but you might be better able to do it next time mm. Um, mm. and in fact I don't my impression is most people don't actually feel that they have to come back usually people once they've got some sort of agreement they've got a bit of confidence that they can resolve things themselves in the future. Mm -hmm. 
And, and these days, of course, you get lots of arguments around how we're going to communicate with each other because often the dispute is made much worse by the fact that people have been texting each other, saying rude things, reacting very quickly to something mm. that's happened, mm. uh, not getting in touch with the other person, not turning up on time, you know, not, not bringing the children at the right moment to the uh, drop-off point and all those sorts of issues. And if you can get them thinking more carefully about how they can work these things out in a practical way, well, you're actually putting them in a much stronger position then to make mm. it work. Um, mm. And in fact, that's one of our jobs, apart from saying, are you going to review this after a certain time, is to keep asking them reality checking all the time. Do you think that will work? Um, how are you going to make that work? What happens if something goes wrong? What are you going to do? Mm. Um, mm. So you try and anticipate all those sorts of tricky bits. Mm. So if when, um, or I guess in a lot of situations, it seems to me like, say, particularly with the, the right-wingers hating Muslims at the moment, is they're yeah. bad, and when Pauline Hanson first came, she hated Asians more, and that yeah. sort of thing. Mm. It seems to be either a real or a constructed ignorance of, of what the people you hate are and think and do. And does that carry mm. in on, into the personal sort of level as well? I mean, is it just not knowing and not having the knowledge of the other person or the correct idea that, that brings a lot of this conflict? Yeah. Well, uh, maybe that the best example of that is adult-adolescent uh, conflict. Um, uh, because that raises a lot of that sort of thing. It, what happens, what tends to happen is that the adult, the parent, comes in thinking, ah, at last I've got these mediators, they're going to help sort out my kid for me. You know, and the kid comes in thinking, I suppose these people will be biased against me and, you know, all I just want to do is tell me how to live my life and, you know, they'll make life worse. So you have to keep reminding them that, that our job is not to actually convert the other person. <laughs> Um, yeah. And so, you know, as long as you, and again, they will have been prepared by our intake people so that they know theoretically what they can expect. But even so, when they get in the room, they might still revert to a very antagonistic position. And so, um, yeah, you, you've you've got to allow the opportunity for them to be to be each respected in the way they they're approaching it and to. And we have to model the fact that we're, we're listening to each of them. Part of our job is actually to summarise what we hear. So when each person speaks, uh, we take notes and then we feed back a summary of what we've heard from each person. And the reason we do that is to affirm to each person that somebody's listening to what they've said and also that the other person hears somebody else mm. saying the sort of things that the, the opponent has said. Mm. In, in fairly new... I mean, you know, we're not going to sort mm. of <laughs> include all the rude words, but <laughs> <laughs> we're going to sort of <laughs> try to be as, as careful as we can. And I think that helps. If you, can, if you can sort of give people feedback like that, then they can hear more clearly what, you know, what's happening. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. What about at the community level, like the Pauline Hudson example or the, yeah. the anti-Islam sentiment? Is there? Do you know of any work going on in that area, or just trying to educate about what 
you know, just the reality, like Scotty said, of these humans living mm. their lives. Yes. Um, I think that it's a it's a bit sporadic. I think, but. Um, there are various interfaith sort of groups and things like that that try to do some of that sort of work of bringing people together from different faith traditions to understand each other. I won't have anything at the moment. I'm involved in a group called Dialogue at the ANU. Now, um, in Canada, it's in Vancouver, they have a Dialogue Centre which is funded by the Canadian government as far as I can work out. And what they do is they have a building that's in the round mm -hmm. and so they have people coming in from local government, national government and on foreign policy issues as well and they have these dialogues in these circular concentric circles. And um, the idea was to set up something similar in Canberra mm. as a national dialogue centre wow. and some money was raised for it but because they didn't get it going, in fact, there's a site next to the Treasury building, the mm. car park. That oh. was, was earmarked for it. Oh, that would have been great. Right yeah. Magna Carta. Exactly. Yeah. So when, it found, when they found they couldn't get enough sponsorship for it because the government wasn't prepared to put any money in, uh, the ANU Law School said they would uh, take over the sort of responsibility for, for keeping the idea going. Mm. And so part of, some of us are involved in a dialogue group that's thinking about how can you promote dialogue in public policy. Mm. And you may have heard of the Canberra Alliance for Participatory Democracy. Yeah. Well, some of our people are connected with that as well. Mm. And so things like that, where we're trying to provide more opportunities in the Canberra community for proper dialogue processes and getting the members of the assembly, the legislative assembly and so on involved in that whole idea of how do you engage people more in public policy discussions. Mm, I was wondering if you'd mm. be involved with that participatory democracy because it seems like the skill set <coughs> would be much the same, you know, trying to reach agreement. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a well worth supporting that group actually. They seem to have some pretty good Australia 21 and those groups are doing the same sort of thing in a, in a sort of national level, I suppose. Okay. Um, so, yeah, there's a few opportunities like that, I think. We've tried a little bit, within Quakers, we've tried a little bit about, because we're approached by some people, Sri Lankan, people from the Sri Lankan diaspora in Canberra, because, as you probably know, the, the aftermath of the civil war in Sri Lanka is still... Mm. still rolling on and still quite a lot of Tamils don't want to talk with Sinhalese and all that sort of thing and we tried a couple of times to bring people together from all sides and that's had a bit of success I think in getting people to talk to each other a bit more again in a more neutral environment um, but it's a, yes it's a slow, uh, slow thing mm. so. I would start, you know how Pauline Hanson was on that show that once on Monday nights, ABC One, with a panel. Q&A. Q&A. Q &A. I remember I was watching it in the US, saw it. But one of the things that I was struck with is how like, she was making, making these assertions and then people in the audience were challenging it. And like it was such a logical challenge. It was like, there's no way you could hold that position mm -hmm. after being challenged. And yet she kind of, that didn't seem to worry her at all, but the challenge, like, 
she kept holding that assertion. And yes. you think about other groups in society where it's like the information is there to challenge and to topple that position, but it's not going to ever work. Me and Scotty, we were talking about that the other day, mm-hmm. hey? like just how it's not, you kind of you think to yourself, if I could tell someone, mm-hmm. if I could tell them the truth, mm-hmm. or if I could show them that they're, yeah. but it just doesn't seem to be, I was talking about that in the context of mediation, because I feel like the same, you feel like if you sit two people down and they can, you can expose the truth, but it just doesn't seem to be it doesn't always. how it goes. Yeah. Well, um, like Edward de Bono wrote a, wrote a book called I Am Right, You Are Wrong. <laughs> and in this book he basically said we've, been, we've gone through three stages in history the first stage was dogma you know the church basically told you what to believe and, right. that, and that, was, that, was, that was the truth then we moved to the era of the renaissance and everything and, and the rise of law and so we got reason which is why this phrase mm. I am right you are wrong and I can prove that you yeah. are wrong and that I am right. Yeah. So our whole sort of legal structure is built around that sort of thing. But he said now, of course, we're moving much more into perception. Mm. So there's a lot more now where it's a matter of where I'm coming from and where you're coming from. Right, yeah. yeah. Mm. And so, mm. in a way, mediation's come into that sort of space. Um, yeah, and I... I think that's a really clever way to, you know, kind of, you know, framework Frame. around, you know, what's happening in terms of, you know, the span of time with Westerners at any rate. Um, but I wonder about mm. a sort of deep human nature need or I feel like, you know, I see a need for there to be a scapegoat. And you know whether it's a, it's mm-hmm. you know in a village or in a nation or you know mm-hmm. on a global scale, and you know sort of how that fits with, I guess, peace work and mediation, um, and the way that fear and hatred and anger are also mm. sort of very much part of what it means to be human, and. You know, because what I feel personally when I think about peace work and mediation, and mm. you know, I've been an activist involved in it, and I've been to mediation, you mm. know, in a, in a relationship breakup, and with my son through his school. Oh right. Yeah. And um, it just strikes me how much raw, intense emotion mm. is there mm. that you're really asking people to kind of navigate, mm. and and you know, mm. just kind of. You know, it's so much easier to sort of externalise it and go, I hate Muslims or they're the bad guys or you're wrong. Yes. You know, so it's kind of almost like evolution in something, you know. (laughs) Actually, if I could just say, um, my uncle, who's a retired psychotherapist, yeah, he's really looked at the idea of the scapegoat and, you know, how how that still really exists in societies and... um, it's very strong in the human consciousness. Um, yeah, so, mm-hmm. yeah, my uncle has written extensively on the scape- scapegoat mm-hmm. syndrome, you know, from the point of view of psych- um, psychiatry and psychotherapy. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. yeah. yeah, even in the family unit, mm-hmm. you sort of can get yeah. scapegoat. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Them. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, them. Yes, them. <laughs> I always like that sometimes mediators use this, this phrase, everyone's entitled to my opinion. <laughs> I love it, I love it. 
mentioned respect a number of times there. Yeah. I guess in the uh, international mediation, you said that they're trained to treat each other with a bit of respect. And then in the adolescent parent sort of situation, <laughs> you mentioned respect. Yes, yeah, that's true. Trying to establish it. Yeah. In the context of communication between people who might not necessarily agree, how does, mm. or how, yeah. what is respect? How can you get it to manifest? Yeah. <laughs> well, yes, I suppose you. Um, I, I suppose what we'd be trying to do always is if we hear somebody say something disrespectful or something that's really nasty, if you like, towards someone else, we'll we'll try and we may do that reverse questioning that I mentioned earlier, asking the other person to reflect back what they're hearing, um, or we may. We may actually stop the process for a few minutes and actually say, you know, what we're hearing you two say is, you know, that you're accusing each other. Have you noticed over the last 10 minutes that you've both been really accusing each other of all sorts of things in the way that you're talking to each other and you're using very strong negative words about the other person? So we can, com we can sort of comment on their communication pattern and we can say, you know, um, do, you, do you think there's a different way in which you could actually talk to each other about this problem? So, you know, we're sort of pushing them a bit, but we're getting them to think about, you know, what is it that... Or, well, I suppose what we're saying to them is you've got a, you've got a pattern of communication that's, go that's going nowhere. And so we don't think you're going to get very far if you keep this up, <laughs> put it bluntly. So can you think of another way you could express that? So that, that, that's a definite technique that we would use to try and get people to... And you could use that at a community meeting too, hey? You know, yeah, you could just yeah, reflect on people's language and... Yeah, that's right. Certain amount of ground rules, I suppose. Because it's one yeah. thing when you've got two people, like, people in a room and they're paying mm. you to do a mediation, but it's different when you're mm. confronting that in a group or something where you don't have that authority to... Yes, that's true. Mm. Yeah. So sometimes you can do that by getting the group to agree what the ground rules are at the beginning. Yeah, right. So if you're the facilitator, you could say, okay, well, we're going to have this discussion about X. Um, what are the things that people think we need to do to make sure this is a, a good conversation between us, you know? And, and you get people to... And then you actually write them up. You say, you know, don't interrupt mm. each other. Only speak once until everyone else had a turn or you know, whatever. Whatever, yeah. yeah. How do you get people to listen? Because I've been in a few meetings where people have just been on their phone or... But they're not... They're, <laughs> they're I think not really. It's a really hard skill, actually. It is. you're tired or you're, you've already said your thing. You don't really want to listen to what someone else says. Especially if you don't agree and you think that it's pretty annoying like yesterday. <laughs> really yeah, it's, it is, it's quite disciplined, really. Mm. The way I've seen that work was in a specific context of the School Without Walls, which had a meeting. The only rule of that whole school was respect for all. And the meeting worked out what that meant. <laughs> and it was enforced by everybody through peer pressure, basically. So if you did that sort of thing, everyone would jump on you straight away. And go, no, 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 that's not how it's done around here. If you want to do that, go somewhere else and do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, You will be excised from the group if you keep that up. And they were. Yeah, yeah. There was only a very few people who yeah, continued yeah. it, but some did and they mm. got booted out. Mm. 
Yeah. Everyone else saw the sense in it and it worked really well. Yeah, yeah. That whole thing lasted for 30 years, run by all the freaks mm. and weirdos in Canberra, <laughs> and it was done so much it. better. <laughs> so much better than anything run by the bloody government. <laughs> and it, it punched out people who were highly employable because they could think for themselves and treat people with respect. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we were involved in the AME school, which had a similar sort of situation. Yeah. Probably not quite as not quite as advanced a school that was, but still. <laughs> Yeah, younger yeah. school, but yeah. but the kids, yeah. all, you know, they all came out with a tremendous sense of camaraderie and support of each other and all that sort of stuff. Mm. It's really fantastic. Mm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, uh, do you have anything like this in Russia, Sergey, that you know about, like Russian models and mediation? Or not at no. They might have a different form, hey, as well. Like, might just be manifest in a different way. Hmm. So are there any other things? I mean, you mentioned sort of uh, not interrupting and just speaking once and waiting your turn. Are there any other things that would be valuable for, <laughs> say, me to think about what I'm doing when I'm talking within a group trying to organise something? Yeah. So uh, one of the things about the Quaker process is that it's highly disciplined. It requires a high level of self-discipline, which some people find very irksome. Yeah. Uh, but it, uh, and it includes those sort of things. So if we're having a business meeting about some issue, series of issues, we'll, the, the, the person who's running the meeting is called the clerk, and the clerk determines who speaks. And the rules are, and the clerk will normally say at the beginning, you're only to speak once to any item unless you're invited to speak a second time. <laughs> You're allowing you to allow silence between contributions so that people can take in what you've said. Um, what else do we do? Well, you've obviously you, you know, speak respectfully. Um, those are the main things, I guess. And then what happens is that when a particular... It, it reduces the chance of people repeating something that someone else has already said and you think, oh God, you know, we've heard it. So, but it does take longer. It means that people have to go more deliberately through and, um, and it may throw up something you didn't expect. But the other thing we do is that the clerk is writing a minute at the end of all this saying, this is what we've agreed, and then feeds it back and says, is this what we've agreed? And... Uh, that means an, you know, an extra process mm. of making sure that everyone in the room actually understands what's being decided and goes along with it. And if someone says, I can't agree with that, and really is very strongly against it, the decision will probably be deferred or referred to some other process to look at. Or we need more information or something, you know, so we'll go away and do that and come back. So there's always this sense of unhurried pace, if you like, of we're not going to rush things here, we're going to take our time, and you might get frustrated, but, you know, that's, that's life. Mm. So, yeah, it's, it's quite interesting. Mm. But the result is generally a very high level of agreement uh, that, you know, this is what we've agreed to do and we've worked it through and 
And the cravings are pretty active as well. Like I've been always struck by that, like how much is actually happening. Yeah. Like there are, actually if something happens in the news or there's a response, mm. a group form, some, a concrete action. <laughs> something Because I done. think, yeah, one of the things if you talk about speed and aggression in our society, <laughs> like it seems like that's necessary because we've got to do all these things. And, but then when you look at the things that we're doing, it seems like why is it, why are we in such a rush and so aggressive? Like we're not actually mm-hmm. making good decisions anyway or like yeah, that's, it doesn't seem fine. that wise. Well, the way we overcome some of that problem is that we authorise our office bearers to speak on issues at their own discretion. Mm-hmm. Because, uh, because the, the sort of culture is developed where people are, have got corporate kind of knowledge of what the group believes, then it's reasonable to say to the clerk, you know, if the media ring you up about this, mm. you're, you, know, you know what to say. Because you've heard the discussion, you've heard what people have said, you've, you've got them in it. So on things like same-sex marriage, where Quakers for a long time were out on a limb amongst all the other churches, um, you know, our clerks and people were, and well, I was one of them at the time, um, were able to say, well, this is what we believe uh, on, about this whole issue. And um, mm. so you do trust people and... Um, but, uh, but also, you know, if, if people can't agree, well, you just say, all right, well, we, we'll have to wait. I'll give you a very practical example. We had a woman who was very commit, very strong activist, peace activist, wanted to go to Iraq as a human shield. And uh, a, a whole lot of us were quite nervous about what we could, you know, how this was going to work out because she was basically going on her own. And we're trying to think, oh, well, she's very, you know, she's fearless. We know she's fearless. She does all sorts of other things. And we know that she'll, you know, look after herself as well as she can. But, you know, something could go wrong. So there was a lot of nervousness about, you know, should we support her in doing this or not? And we had to have several meetings about it. Mm. And eventually we came round to the view, yes, we could support her. And this is, these are the things that we could do. We could give her certain equipment and so on that would help her to communicate back to Australia what was going on. You know, we could, there were certain, and these are the people that she could keep in touch with by mobile phone or whatever. Mm. Um, so we had a sort of support system built around her going. And in fact, you know, nothing terrible happened and she got her footage of what she wanted to record and she came back to Australia and talked about it and made a film and you know, all that sort of thing. So that's what we call a concern. Mm. If someone has a concern or a leading to do something, mm. we, yeah, right. we, we sort of um, go through a, a testing process where you, the group discusses yeah, right. yeah. Well, how, how to go and how to support them. Aha, mm. uh-huh. a bit of right. drama here. Right. <laughs> How's the time going? Already, yeah. Okay. I was going to give you, going to show you some of these documents that I've got here, in case any of you would like to have any. Um, so these are the briefing documents that I mainly write, but they're put out by the Quaker Peace Committee. And so, if I, I could just pass them around, if you want to take one out of each bundle, please. There's enough here for everyone to take one each, if you want to. So here's one on refugees on Manus Island and Nauru. 
These are things that have been produced this year by our committee and some of them are called action alerts and they're shorter and they're basically saying this is what's happening and this is what you can do about it and here's some suggested actions and here are the people you should lobby or whatever. So we try to be fairly neutral in our language but we, we make it very clear that we're trying to resolve issues of peace and justice as best as we can. So that's one on, as I say, what was happening on ref, uh, in relation to the legislation that was about, um, oh, you know, legislation prevent any asylum seekers who come by boat ever coming to Australia and all that sort of thing. So there's, mm -hmm. a, there's a document about that. Uh, a more recent one is the citizenship legislation, which came out very recently, you know, this whole idea of forcing people to stay and wait be here longer before they got citizenship and all that kind of stuff. So that's another one. Um, see if I can find it. Oh, there's, a, <coughs> there's another one here called Freedom of Speech, which was all around the Human Rights Act and all that kind of stuff, you know, the 18C and so forth. Mm -hmm. um, so that's another one that's come out this year. Um, that's a, yeah. And then, as I mentioned, the last one that came out just this last week was the Nuclear Weapons Ban Treaty, mm. uh, where we're just telling people what the UN decided, where Australia stands, and who you can lobby about Australia refusing to take part in the process and all that. Um, are you connected up with any of these relatively new kind of internet-based activist groups that, um, you know, also have a position in relation to these types of issues, especially around human rights type issues? Get like, up. Uh, oh, get ups. I guess yeah. uh, one. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot of spin-offs. Like I, I am on so many different mm. <laughs> email groups now because they're all kind of they all mm. kind of work together. All these little groups. And it seems that over time there are more and more of them and also there's much more of an international focus with a lot of them as well. Like, um, you know, I'm always being invited to, um, you know, sign a petition or something about something that might be happening in anywhere in the world, in any country. And there's, some, there's a local group in that country that's kind of reaching out through its network to, um, you know, like GetUp or someone like that in yeah, Australia. There's, yes, there do are you, a couple. Do you get involved in all of that kind of... Well, some of our people do, certainly. And actually, you mind, we, we've just set up a Facebook page for our Quaker Peace Committee. So we've decided, you know, we've got to tackle things through the, uh, the sort of modern technology and mm. face, uh, you, know, yeah. you know, social media. So we're trying to build more of that kind of awareness as well. So, okay. Yeah. There's it one. just seems to be this enormous forum for a new for, forum for um, activism yeah, that yeah. has just suddenly kind of you know arisen almost out of nowhere. That's and um, yeah, I think yeah, it's, it's taking a lot of um, it's getting a lot of space, if you like, in terms of minority yeah. voices in policy debates and things like that. Yeah, that's really good, um, isn't it? Yeah. There are well, pros I think and cons to it, though, as well. Like, Sorry? Yeah, there are pros and cons to it as well. Like, just the amount of information that people have these yeah. days. So, 
you might get a whole lot of emails or <coughs> links about Facebook pages and things, but a lot of people don't look at them or they look at them really briefly and then get distracted by the next thing. So <laughs> it is a, a new era, era of yeah. activism, but it's a very different form of activism. And yeah, I wonder how it's affecting people, the depth that mm. people go into issues on. Yeah, yeah um, well, exactly. I think it's, um, yeah. and this is one of the things that may be more conservative or um, establishment type people might think about these groups is that it almost doesn't count if you sign a petition or something online because all you actually had to do was click something and it's like it's too easy and therefore your mm. attempt to express your voice can be ignored in a way. Activism no, has to be hard work. Yeah, yeah. Hard work. You have to be fighting, you know. Yes. Um, it doesn't really mean much if you just clicked a button because you felt, um, you know, empathy for the issue that you were clicking the button about, which I think is really hard to take, but I think it's also just an attempt, obviously, to minimise the significance of that voice. Well, know, no, but, like, but to, to make it sound like it doesn't count because it's just a bunch of people who just thought, oh, yeah, I'll sign this, I'll, I'll click on that. That's not what I was suggesting. But um, if you send an email that's a form email, it does actually have less weight with the politician than if you hand write a letter or write something yourself. Like, that's just the way it is. But yeah, it's not to yeah. say that it's still not a powerful message. Yeah, it would be taken notice. Yeah, it's well, I think it's hard Because it takes less motivation, it takes less, motivation, it takes less yeah. effort from the individual. It doesn't so why does that matter? I mean, yeah. I understand that point of view, but it's also like, why does that matter in, in, in terms of you either agree with something or you don't? Mm. Like if it's a click or a... Mm. Yeah. 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 If you agree with something enough to put your name to it, that's yeah. what it's all about. ACT Legislative Assembly is an e-petition. If an e-petition gets 500 signatures, they have to pay attention to it. Oh, yeah. Okay. okay. That's so that, that's an e-one. Mm. Right. An e-one, yeah. okay. And that's one of the government ones, like yeah. the ones that yeah. are hosted yeah. on the government that's side. Right. Yeah. And it's only 500 people. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that's Who yeah. gets to write Causes. the petition, though? Hmm? Who writes those mm. petitions? Oh, I know, but mm. I guess you can write, you can they're paying attention is what I'm saying. Okay. You, yeah, know, yeah. Right. you just get them lodged there. You can write it yourself and put it on the site. Yeah. yeah. I guess you know yourself, like if someone comes around and knocks on the door mm. and has a long talk to you, it mm. kind of means more to you than if someone just like, <laughs> just I don't know, stuff you in the Yeah. <laughs> It doesn't say anything yeah. at all. Something to say it was There's a there's a, a creative action that any of you want to get up early in a couple of weeks. Um, the nuclear weapons test, I mean nuclear weapons ban, they're gonna go outside Parliament House in Melbourne Avenue mm. on the the eighth of August and um, hold up placards saying, Welcome back. While you're away, we banned the bomb. <laughs> Sign the treaty. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that's rather creative. <laughs> Is that when the politicians are returning? Yeah, they're coming back right. on the eighth. Yeah. yeah. So, mm. so that's the, that's the plan. Oh. Mm. So the other two things I was just going to give you was these are longer term things. Social defence, which sort of went out of fashion for a while. That's the idea of non-violent civilian defence. Mm. In other words, you. I, I used to belong to a group in Canberra some oh, 20 years ago which was into this in a big way. How would you defend Australia against an attack, a military attack, mm. by social means, you know, by denying 
the enemy all kinds of uh, access to things and some various kinds of sabotage and things like that. It was an interesting... Anyway, there's pe a guy called Brian Martin who used to be in Canberra who's now in Wollongong University who does a lot of research and he's writing another book on this. So I did a bit of a summary of where this sort of thinking is in, a, in the world at mm -hmm. the moment. Um, the other one is building a culture of peace, which we've been talking about a bit here. Uh, giving you some sort of background of all the different groups around uh, around the world who are working on creating a culture of peace, and, and you know I've given websites and things there that people can check on. And some of them are religious groups, and some of them are not, and you know it's a whole mixture of people. So there is a kind of um, I always feel heartened by you know what I find in these things about what what people are doing, because you can get into a bit of a despondent feeling sometimes that all the forces arrayed against peace are too great mm. and that um, it's all going down the tube. Well, you know, <clears throat> in my kind of battered and twisted <laughs> yeah. sort of, you know, hanging in there, watching what the, what's happening in the world now and the more I learn about history, mm. you know, it kind of renders me speechless as well. <laughs> Um, but, you know, sort of an optimistic thought I had was that, at least for the American government, they're not going to be able to afford a war because of the <laughs> cost of rehabilitating the soldiers afterwards being yeah, so yeah. impossibly, yeah. you know, it's so expensive. So expensive, yeah. And, True um, you know, I kind of thought, well, yeah, I mean, let the economics have its way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, okay, maybe it'll all just be drone warfare intergalactically. Yeah. It'll still be this massive waste, idiotic waste of resources. Massive, yeah, right, waste of... Sure mm. enough, yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah, before they would turn to an alternative <laughs> approach, you know. <laughs> Because, yeah. you know, I think I love this book I read many years ago by Barbara Ehrenreich, which was called War is a Bad Habit. Uh, Something yes. like that. That's yes. the whole thesis of the book. Yeah. The habits yes. humans learnt at Good. some point and never gave up. Yeah, it's very much that way, I think. Yes, I think. Um, if you listen to somebody like Alison Bronofsky, who's a former diplomat and is now very outspoken about the militarisation of this town. Canberra? Mm. Basically saying, wherever you go in Canberra, because she used to live in Canberra as a diplomat and now she lives in Sydney, but she, and she's an academic now, but mm. she says that the, the tragic thing is that when you go to the ANU and all these other places, they're riddled with people who are basically military-oriented. And in government, all the government agencies that deal with defence mm. and so forth, it's sort of become a big... Mm industry in itself almost and um, and I think that is a worry because it, it's it's a reflection of the way so many resources have been put into the traditional kind of defense thinking and mm. and so um, actually if I can use Russia as an example so okay, um, I'm in a U3A current affairs class and we had a talk from one of the people from ANU, who's an, a, Russia, a specialist on Russia. And his line was extremely anti-Putin and very strongly sort of negative about the whole kind of presence of Russia in the world, in a sense. 
And I could see that this was almost a kind of... Uh, I've heard this from several other sources in, in academia as well. And yet you then have somebody like Tony Kevin, who, as an ex-diplomat and who's been to Russia several times, gives a very different perspective and starts challenging people about, you know, well, are we really getting the proper story about what's happening in Russia? And are we getting brainwashed, you know, by the... <laughs> the further away from a local thing you get, the easier it is to lie about. Yeah. Russia's a long way away. It's a long way away, yeah. yeah. So, you know, it's... And a... is that scapegoating? Yeah, yeah. Demonising? Is it, is it, yeah. What, what, and what gets reported and what doesn't get reported and all that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, you start to think, oh, my goodness. Mm. Uh, so I guess we just have to keep up the pace as best best we can to uh, counteract some of these negative elements uh, that are very strong. I suppose what you're mm. saying about the, the merging of the military and the government, you could call it the military-government complex <laughs> or something, Yes, yes. it goes yes. right back. I mean, if you look at the formation of corporations, for instance, mm. that was essentially the delegation of the king's power to a corporation mm. to go and do its imperial bidding and bring the wealth back. So mm. Mm. There's your, your nexus of industrial and government and government. military all in that one little agreement, I guess. New set of laws and arrangements to enable that to happen. Yeah, yeah, it's really quite interesting, isn't it? But, you know, there is some progress. For example, you reminded me that, you know, in the early days of the church or the Christian movement, it was a pacifist, totally pacifist. Then you got Constantine and these people coming in and saying, oh, well, the government, you know, is has to be factored into this so, you know, you can now have a just war and all that sort of thing. And now we've got Pope uh, Francis now saying a just peace is more important than a just war. We, there's actually been a movement back in that other direction, which is really interesting. About time. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Nice one. Yeah, yeah. So... Is there unjust peace? <laughs> Well, that's some good question. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Mm. But I have to think about it. Well, it's yeah. without, yeah, with peace with justice, I suppose, is what people would say is what you're looking for. You know, that mm. you can have a sort of peace which is very. An oppression. Um, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. But, but uh, you're looking for something more than that. Oh, is it, you know, I heard lunch with you once and you were telling me about the huge movement, like the world's biggest gathering of women, I think it was, before the Second World War, where these people from all over Europe came to meet to try and talk about how they could, like how they could mm. stop the... Stop oh, that was the First World War, actually, 1915. I thinking, yeah. I'd never, ever heard of that. And, there, and mm. I recently read a book, um, and in the book were all kinds of, uh, like the world's first non-violent army, which had almost a million people in it. All these things that I'd never heard of, and I was thinking, like, they just get wiped... They get yes, wiped out, yes. and, it, and it means that you just, yeah, it's, there's so many things we just forget, all these efforts. For, all these, yes, yeah. Which you get wiped out by a single violent... Well, there are, there are these peace uh, brigades that have been operating for some years now in, in trouble spots where they send people into troubled situations to accompany people who are threatened in... Mm. You know, human rights defenders and people and so forth. Um, 
and there's uh, there are some one of our Quakers, younger Quakers, has just been to the to um, Palestine oh, yeah. on one of these peacemaker teams where they accompany people who are threatened by people throwing rocks at them or whatever it might be, mm. farmers or... Mm. And uh, so they accompany them through checkpoints and they monitor the checkpoints and all this kind of stuff and report back. And So there are all these kinds of initiatives happening around the place and uh, they're very, you know, they're very good to, to know about. Mm, so... Yeah, well, if anyone's keen to lend a hand in documenting that sort of stuff and putting it on the public record, I've got a radio show that needs help. <laughs> <laughs> there you are, there's the commercial. Very <laughs> 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 What do you need help with? Anything. <laughs> yeah. 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 Looking for things, doing interviews, writing questions about interviews, presenting the show, editing, you name it. Many, many mm. things. Yes, keep the flag flying there. Yeah. Mm. Oh, well, I've overstayed your time. But, um, <laughs> thank, you. <laughs> thank you very much for your lively conversation.